artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello, we're back with the second part of my interview with Audrey Tang, the Digital Minister of Taiwan. In part one, we talked about Audrey's work on building digital democracy in Taiwan, a participatory system of democracy that distributes more information, more power, and more responsibility to the citizenry through the use of modern technology and social media. And we talked about the responsibility of government to people as technology advances. We talked about the effects of the coronavirus and how digital democracy guided Taiwan's response to it. We talked about disinformation and how Audrey tackled it and the role that the Premier's bottom played in fighting dangerous rumors. Okay, that needs some context. You'll just have to listen to the episode. And we talked about actual information warfare and where that might be coming from, what it might be doing, and how to stop it. If you're not aware of some of the basic geopolitical pressures Taiwan faces, now would be a good time to do some googling and find out. It doesn't take a leap of imagination to see how AI plays into these themes. AI is already being used to create and amplify disinformation, fake news, and propaganda. It has the potential to overwhelm actual human discourse on any topic. After all, all it takes to create 10 million bots instead of one bot supporting some political or ideological position is the effort to type another seven zeros. If we cannot find and remove them from our online forums, the truth is an early casualty. Audrey's approach to the disinformation propaganda, the fake news, is to start a better meme that, as she says, fights rumor with humor. And it works extremely well in Taiwan. Could it work in the West? Wouldn't it be a good idea to at least try it? Before we get on with the rest of the interview, a few stories in today's Ripped from the Headlines segment. Microsoft has laid off dozens of human editors who select the articles for the MSN News Service and replace them with an AI. Two systems called KRED and NPA that select articles for people. Unfortunately, it did not work out so well in one case. It chose to use a photograph of the wrong mixed-race member of the band Little Mix in a story about the singer Jade Thurwall. Instead, illustrating the story with a picture of her fellow band member, Lee Ann Pinnock. As you can imagine, this did not go down well in an era of Black Lives Matter protests. And Boston Dynamics opened commercial sales of Spot, it's quadruped robot that can climb stairs and traverse rough terrain. Businesses can purchase the Spot Explorer development kit for $74,500. Spot Explorer includes the robot, two batteries, the battery charger, the tablet controller, a robot case, a power case, and Python client packages for Spot APIs. No word on whether you also get a digital bone for Spot to bury or what it does with fire hydrants. This isn't the first time we've seen a robot dog. Look up the Sony Ibo. But that was a toy. 
spot is designed for real work, at least at 20 times the cost of the Ivo, it had better be. What can you use a robot dog for? Send me your suggestions. Okay, without further ado, let's get on with part two of the interview with Audrey Tang. There's concern in the West about the impact of artificial intelligence on jobs, and technology development can provide benefits, and at the same time, uh, disruption that has unanticipated or negative effects on some people. Do you see this happening there? Mm -hmm. Can you forecast that happening? What do you do about that? Well, uh, here uh, we we say assistive intelligence, uh, and this is something that um, many open source and prior to that free software movement practitioners do, right? They just redefine really an acronym to to fit their idea. So so that's what I do too. So I always just say assistive intelligence, and and this uh, redefinition of AI basically um, tells us that we need to uh, treat AI as we would to a human assistant. That is to say, they need to respect our privacy and agency, act in our best interest while providing wise counsel. However, accountability, that is to say, if they make a decision on behalf of us, we need to uh, ask for a full explanation of why it is in our best interest. Uh, And that is essential in human assistance. So why should we uh, relax our standards when it's um, AI, when it's machine learning powering the same assistive technologies? And so, for example, we have a presidential hackathon where every year we ask for the best ideas of AI that can transform the public service. Uh, And every time uh, there's hundreds of teams, this year there's over 200 teams, and we choose five at the end, and there's no money, there's no prize money, uh, but the president gives a trophy, which is a microprojector that if you turn it on, it projects the president handing you the trophy. So it's a meta trophy uh, that describes itself. uh, And it represents the presidential promise that whatever idea you have done prototype in the previous three months, we commit ourselves to make a national policy within the next year. And so one of the best um, ideas that came out of it uh, is using assistive intelligence to automatically detect uh, kind of self-repairing systems of uh, like water pipes and other essential utility supplies. Previously, people were employed to listen to the pipes uh, using like a stethoscope. Uh, and most of the time they listen to the pipes that are not leaking. Uh, they only get creative and become solution providers when they listen to the part that has been leaking. And on average, it took two months between a leak to happen uh, for it to be discovered by those rotating people who listen to it. And worse, they have problems recruiting young people because young people did not think uh, this job to be very fulfilling, even though it may be uh, relatively higher paid. Uh, by working with AI uh, researchers, they build a chatbot that can remind uh, each uh, worker where are the mo- most likely leaking places near them with a high degree of accuracy, like 70%, so that every time they travel in the day, they're almost guaranteed to work on something interesting instead of something routine. And so it did not replace the job of those professional repairs people, but it ensured that the trivial part of their work gets automated, or the interesting and creative part of their work um, can be then taught to the young people who are much more willing to join the workforces of the Taiwan Water Company if they know their work is primarily problem-solving instead of just doing redundant or trivial work. 
just a note to the audience here, I'm going to have to go back over this and listen to it several times to get all of this. So uh, you might want to do that as well. Audrey, you were quoted in the Taipei Times as saying that AI should be developed transparently in a world where it looks as though most of that cutting edge AI is coming out of Google, Apple, IBM. How do you see that happening? And what would that look like in a practical sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, AI um, is essentially something that the society brings to help assist uh, the societal values. So, for example, when the MIT developed the self-driving vehicle, the PEV, persuasive electric vehicle, instead of blindly deploying it to the street of Taiwan, we first have built a sandbox, uh, and it is happens to be my office, um, is a park, the social innovation lab in the heart of Taipei. Um, everybody can just walk in, there's no walls, and have 40 minutes of my time to chat with me. Uh, and so uh, I do open office hours every Wednesday, so it just happens those AI researchers just came to my office hour, bringing with them those self-driving tricycles and say that they want uh, to deploy it. So I asked them to provide uh, in open source uh, their source code in open hardware, how to build it, how to uh, make uh, people's um, training of that uh, norm uh, apparent to the nearby like Taipei Tech and other college and universities. And they built quite a few mobility hackathons together to figure out with the nearby markets, such as the Jianguo flower market, how to make maximally societal useful use of the self-driving technology. And interestingly, with the feedback from the market, literally people who purchase some orchid flowers uh, and holding it, uh, and they just walk to the park and uh, see me and ask minister, what are you doing with those shopping baskets, this trolley with baskets? And I'm like, this is not a shopping cart. This is a self-driving vehicle. It gets you places. And they're like, no, I will see a basket there. This looks just like a shopping cart. Let's see if whether this flower pot will fit and it will of course fit uh, and they say um, you know why don't you reprogram it so that instead of taking us places it follows us around in the jingle flower market so we can shop in a hand-free fashion and just um, shop the flower pots uh, and put it to the basket and we see also on the television that there is this platooning technology that when a self-driving vehicle is full when its basket is um, full, it can step back and summon another one to form a fleet uh, and that they can help us in the shopping cart fleet uh, so that we can do hands-free shopping because they don't want a fast-running self-driving vehicle. They want a safe one that can help them carry their baggages, as it were. And the MIT folks did not design the PEV for that. So we need to work a lot with the local um, civic hackers to realize that, oh, we replaced the one uh, blinking light uh, with two eyes that shows where the attention is. It's not strictly necessary because it actually uses LIDARs uh, and other ambient sensing technologies. But if you're navigating a busy market, you need to show the people around you where you're going. You need to read the emotions and so on. You need to Understanding time when we first yield to the elders, not to the children, as people in Boston do, and so on. And all these social norms are done in a co-creation fashion so that the collaborative learning of the societal norms can co-domesticate the assistive intelligence, in this case, PEVs. And the learning that we did in the past year or so during the sandbox has now transformed the supply of buses 
so that uh, after the Taipei Metro closes off every midnight, um, I think next week or so, uh, they're trying out the self-driving small buses of maybe 30 people in it, in its dedicated bus lane uh, to fill in uh, the lack of uh, public transportation after Metro closes. And this is done in a way that maximizes the societal input to the norms. And so even though the underlying technology may be developed by many multinational companies and research facilities, I think is essential before a society uh, decide to incorporate into the market to first settle with uh, the sandbox uh, experiments and co-creation regulation fields to make sure that people understand the norm around it and only uh, order for those norms. That is to say, smart citizens before building smart city infrastructure. Well, I'm going to have to process a lot of that offline. And I want to move on to an international area here. The Obama administration produced mm-hmm. a report from the National Science and Technology Council on the future of AI. And one of their recommendations was the U.S. government should develop a government-wide strategy on international engagement related to AI and develop a list of AI topical areas that need international engagement and monitoring. Are you seeing any developments or developing anything in that respect yourself? Yeah, definitely. If you just um, search for AI Taiwan, you will probably see our national AI strategy website, ai.taiwan.gov.tw. We designed the domain name so that it's very difficult to beat us on the SEO. Uh, It's probably guaranteed to show up the first place um, if you search for AI Taiwan, uh, because the domain name is AI Taiwan, the title is AI Taiwan. Uh, And in that, uh, we make sure that we work with like-minded economies and countries to provide not only the the sensor fusion, the optics, the electronics, the edge computing, uh, which are all forte of Taiwan with TSMC uh, and other companies, MediaTek and so on, working on this. But we also work uh, with other jurisdictions with similar philosophies uh, to transform our learnings into workable policies. We work with Europe on one side to build privacy-preserving and privacy-enhancing technologies. For example, uh, one nonprofit in Taiwan called AI Labs, founded by uh, the previous director of Cortana, uh, Interaction AI Technology Microsoft, uh, who went back to Taiwan to start their own nonprofit. It's a little bit like OpenAI. Um, they developed the contact tracing app-based Bluetooth and so on technologies uh, with an open blueprint and with consultation of many international counterparts to tackle the issue of how to make sure that the people keep as their private information, their whereabouts, but only share sufficient bits of information so that people get notified when there's a high risk of getting infected and so on. And we've never needed that technology in Taiwan because we've never had community spread. So it's not deployed in Taiwan. But people in the UK, for example, are very interested uh, and participated in this uh, collaborative deployment. And when it comes to with the US, we hold the COHAC, the coronavirus or collaborative hackathon at cohack.tw, cohack.tw. And you can also see many US and international teams to tackle the coronavirus and also how to migrate to a post-corona world smoothly um, with their uh, AI-based technologies. The top five winners, I'm very glad to say, are all um, under this uh, idea of autonomy 
well, one team is literally called autonomy uh, that respects the individual's uh, choices and agency, uh, minimizing the privacy harm, designing uh, with privacy in mind, but also empowering the public decisions so that uh, we can share in our own best interest only the part that we're comfortable sharing while contributing to the pandemic resilience. And so, yeah, I would encourage you to check out cohack.tw and all the winners need to provide their source code under the MIT license, which is great because some of them are chatbots using Microsoft Teams platform. If they don't provide the source code, we wouldn't be so easily transport that into other open source chat systems. Is this the time to develop international treaties on the ethical use of AI? How about autonomous weapons? Yeah, I think uh, international norms uh, is as important as international treaties. Treaties are honored, of course, uh, by governments and states, and that are important, such as non-proliferation. Uh, however, if there is uh, no international norm, then um, any government can actually do only the letter of those treaties while trying to work around much as how you know people work around patents uh, and develop something that is de facto the same or even worse because there's no public oversight. It is only by signaling very clearly to politicians that if you work against the societal norms that the people will actually hold the politicians accountable. Can we actually enforce any kind of reasonable uh, AI ethic guidelines? I think the basic idea of privacy and accountability are intuitive uh, to many people, but many people do not understand that privacy is not just a negative freedom, like freedom from peaking or freedom from surveillance, but it could also be an active freedom, a freedom to uh, form uh, data collaboratives, data trust, data collisions uh, that share the intersectional social data with each other while collectively determining where uh, those uh, data should go and how to empower the world for good uh, based on participatory governance of the data. I mean, if it's a credit union, then people understand intuitively how money can be done in a way that is collaboratively and socially responsibly managed. But when it comes to data, uh, we still need to set up the societal norms that ensures the collaborative governance of data. And again, that's something that Taiwan can help because our, for example, air pollution measurement network, the uh, airbox, uh, was built by thousands of um, high school and primary school teachers that just measures the air quality on the balcony, on their school, and so on. And many people just purchase a very cheap, like less than $100 kit at home and they all contribute to the air quality measurement with a distributed ledger so much so that they can um, pressure the public sector because the environment minister doesn't have as accurate a picture to pressure the environment minister to install their micro sensors uh, on the industrial areas um, so that they have a more complete picture of where the air pollution's come from. It's been uh, applied also to water box, to um, uh, arable lands and so on. And so what I'm trying to get at is that when people collaboratively jointly control the data production and see themselves not as data consumers and uh, passively observed uh, objects, but rather subjects and active people who curated data for public good, then the whole idea changes. It's just like when countering disinformation. If you just teach media literacy, which is about consuming information, um, then there's 
a limit of what you can do. But if you instead learn media competence, which is treating everybody as producers of information uh, and responsible citizen journalists at that, then you can collaboratively create a much more robust media ecosystem and landscape. And so just as we have discussed on the disinformation countering campaign, we need to build a similar one when it comes to uh, social data sharing. What do you think we will face in the next 10 years in terms of progress in artificial intelligence? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, I think there's uh, two things. First is that the idea of digital twin previously require a, you know, a very costly infrastructure to set up will probably become pervasive uh, with 5G technology so that, first of all, we don't have to uh, look at two-dimensional representations of one another now. We'll probably just scan ourselves uh, into uh, extended and augmented reality so that uh, we can feel that we're in the same room uh, with a much lower latency and much higher uh, fidelity. And But that essentially brings the online uh, social norms directly um, overlapping it uh, with the offline social norms. So it is essential that this kind of digital twin of not only our public infrastructures and our cities and so on, but also ourselves, our online persona and so on, uh, all this need to be accurately built in a way that uh, respects the the human dignity and the societal norms that uh, makes people comfortable of sharing uh, with their uh, friends instead of being, you know, just um, in a matrix literally like in that movie uh, and so that is the the, the main thing I, I think we need to work on um, with this uh, post 5g era so that's the first thing about pervasive immersive computing and ambient computing that's one um, the second thing I would like to highlight is uh, the data collaboratives the data collaboratives we already see because of the pandemic's uh, requirements in Taiwan we build them of course with the controllership firmly in the social sector, but we also see in other places that because of pandemic, they're justifying much more state surveillance and state control uh, and so on. And in other places, uh, it's in the private sector with very fragmented governance relationship. And so I think this um, governance as outlined uh, by, um, I think that there's a book called Surveillance Capitalism uh, on that, um, needs to uh, be more widely read and understood And in the next 10 years, we will probably see all those three different models of data governance be amplified even more by the pervasive, you know, AIoT technology that I just alluded to. And these governance models uh, will probably uh, go back and re-inform the ideas of constitutional democracy to, to redefine what democracy really is. Because when people already accept the data governance by algorithm, or by data, then it essentially weakens the legal protection and access to justice to only the people who understand open source code. Actually, we we become like lawyers um, in this new um, era. Uh, But if we don't democratize the competence of like the the civic right um, education that people uh, receive when they're just primary schoolers, if we don't do that for algorithmic governance, then uh, even the best designed liberal democracies uh, risk becoming authoritarian or even totalitarian in the next 10 years. Wow, thank you. You know, Audrey, I remember from the conferences where you would be presenting about software to developers that you would be going at a, a rate that would cause steam to come off their heads. I, I, I feel the same way right now. I've I've got so much to think about here. Thank you so much for sharing that with 
everyone who's listening here. I wish you all of the best in all of the challenges and continued success with the programs that you've been carrying out because they have so much to teach us in the West. And I hope more people listen. And I'm doing my part to help with that. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for, um, you know, going through uh, like lightning talks rounds uh, with me. Uh, and if you want to learn more, there's more at TaiwanCanHelp.us. Fantastic. Boy, a half hour with Audrey is like a three-hour postgraduate lecture in the politics of emerging technologies. That's a lot to think about, folks. For starters, what does the reframe of AI as assistive intelligence suggest to you in terms of how we should be developing it safely and ethically? How about that idea of focusing on smart citizens before smart infrastructure? The website she mentioned at the end, by the way, is taiwancanhelp.us. It's so like her to say that international norms are as important as international treaties. Remember, she and I came out of the open source movement of software development, the culture that built the internet. You can hear one of their slogans when she says rough consensus and running code, and the idea of regulation or enforcement is much less appealing to us for achieving a goal than creating a culture that naturally values the goal. Finally, when Audrey was talking about the future idea of a digital twin, what did that make you think of? What did you see? For me, and I don't think this is exactly where she was going, but I'll riff on it for a bit, there is more and more demand on our time, more and more things to do, and you, probably like me, have found yourself saying, but there's only one of me. And no matter how much the technology improves, there will still only be 24 hours in a day for each of us. The most maniacally productive among us, the Jeff Bezoses and the Elon Musks and the Bill Gateses, still put their pants on one leg at a time, as people used to say. But what if there could be more than one of me? Of you? What if there could be an AI avatar of me that was close enough to the real thing to be able to share some of that load? Hey, I can dream, right? We'll wrap it up here. In our next episode, I'll be talking with science fiction authors Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens, names likely familiar to you fellow Trekkies. You see how much range AI takes us into? It just goes to show how far the impact of AI goes and will go. There is no stone in the landscape of human experience that will go unturned by AI. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.